Ready? If you can stand so we can read the word of God. We're going to be reading in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, and chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai and in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them, company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. The Lord blesses you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Well, if you've been with us, you know that over the past couple summers, we have begun to chip away at full books of the Bible. We did two last summer, we're doing five or six this summer, and we'll just, over the years, hopefully I'll get to be here for decades and we'll finish it out or get close to it. But it's important to us that the people here, we understand what the main point of each book of the Bible is, why it's there, and, and why what it is saying to us today. So we're in numbers, not a not a book traditionally that you curl up next to the fire, a nice glass of iced tea, and start to read the book of Numbers. I, I don't, you know, the book has not been done any favors by the Western world by naming it Numbers. I mean, it's not the most enticing of, of titles for books. In the Hebrew world, this book was known as Into the Wilderness. That, that was a, I think you get a few more readings in the Western world if it's still called Into the Wilderness. But it's called Numbers, called Numbers for a very good reason. We'll talk about that. But the purpose of Numbers is simple. To call the second generation of Israelites in the Exodus to be God's holy army and to take the promised land, and this is the key, by not making the same failures as the first generation. All right, I'm going to say that one more time. The purpose of the book of Numbers is to call the second generation of the Exodus Israelites to be God's holy army and take the the promised land without making the failures of the first generation. So the first generation of Israelites, they really messed up. Like they messed up so bad that God said, none of you are going to enter the promised land. I am going to have you wander around until you're all dead. So the second generation can then go and maybe do better than you did. So it wasn't just that Moses had a really bad internal GPS and got lost in the wilderness. God had a very intentional and specific reason for not letting them enter in until 40 years had passed and an entire generation had died. So what is it that that first generation did that was so bad? And the answer is they complained. Kids, do you hear that? I could preach a very self-serving sermon this morning. I might, might have a good family devotion from numbers. But seriously, that's the answer. Complaining is, was, the, was on the surface the failure of the first generation. 
And so I want to, you know, that can sound harsh, like God killed a whole generation for, for complaining. Well, let's look at how they complain, because I think when we look at it and really understand it in its context, it will make a lot of sense and has some very important things to say to us today. So I want to walk through numbers at a high level, and we're going to first look at why they should never have complained, then we're going to look at the nature of their complaint, and then finally, God's response to their complaining. So... Why they shouldn't have complained. Well, to be fair, God is God. He's holy. He's perfect. We're not. We shouldn't complain. All right? On one level, that's true. But beyond that, look at how blessed this first generation was. I mean, outside of Adam and Eve and maybe the generation that saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ physically, I mean, is there a generation that was blessed more than that one? I mean, they, they saw God do miraculous things in Egypt before they left. He saw God part the Red Sea so that they could leave. They, they went to Mount Sinai. They saw God do signs and wonders there. They even messed up at Mount Sinai making the golden calf, and they got to see God in, in the midst of all the miraculous blessings he was pouring on them, forgive, him, forgive them for what they had done. So you would think that these people above all would understand the blessings that they had received, both in signs and wonders, and just being forgiven, doing something very stupid, that they would be set up for success marching to the promised land. Which brings us to chapter one of Numbers. They are at Mount Sinai. They are still camped at Mount Sinai. And the book begins by God commanding Moses, I want you to count all the tribes the men in tribes over the age of 20, except Levi. Okay, so basically fighting men. I want you to count the fighting men, which can sound kind of odd that God who knows the numbers of the, you know, the grains of sand in the ocean and the hairs on our head, that he wants Moses to tell him how big his army is. Well, that's not what's going on, but God knows. God's not doing it for God. He's doing it for the Israelites, as we will see, for Moses and the Israelites. And the number of fighting men is 603,500 people. That's the number that the census comes up with, and that's why we have the title of the book, the book of Numbers, because of this census and one that we're going to see again at the end of the book. But God is not done blessing them. The first 10 chapters of this book is God giving them more blessings. In addition to everything that they've already had, God gives them three more very specific blessings. The first is that he continues to give them the gift of priests. So he's giving them uh, he's giving them intercessors to talk between the people and God to be a doorway of communication, a doorway of forgiveness through sacrifices and through offers. He's giving them this tribe of Levi. So Levi, is, they're not fighting men. That's why they weren't included in the census. They are set apart as priests. And so God gives them instructions about this tribe. He tells everybody where to camp in the, in the camp, where each tribe is supposed to be. And Levi is right there in the center next to the tabernacle. And then he tells all the tribes what they need to bring for the sacrifices and the offerings to be able to dedicate the tabernacle and consecrate the tribe of Levi. So that was the first blessing that God gave them. The second one is that he gave them more instructions on how to remain faithful. I mean, as if they didn't already have enough, God's just trying to give them every single thing they could possibly need to remain faithful. And so they, they received instructions like, men do not marry women in, another, in, in certain cultures. He names these different peoples. 
And I, I always want to clarify what God is doing here because this teaching has been so abused in modern Western history. When Angela and I were first married, I was talking to an older man. He was in his 80s. He's no longer with us anymore. And he was a faithful attender of his local First Baptist Church, and somehow race came up. And he said, well, the Bible just clearly teaches that blacks and whites shouldn't marry. And my eyebrows went up, but I want to be respectful of this older man. And I said, oh, really, where, where do you get that from in the Bible? And he fumbled, but then went here, went to, to numbers where God's saying certain cultures shouldn't marry. And I, I said, well, you know, what about Moses? His wife, Zipporah, is not an Israelite, and God has no problem with that intercultural marriage. I think something else is going on here. What's going on is God is wanting them to remain faithful, and these specific cultures, specifically the Canaanites are mentioned, they don't worship God. They, they, they actually they do horrible things like child sacrifice. And God knows that when we marry somebody, if we don't marry somebody who has the same faith, and I would even say a similar stage and maturity and vigor of faith, that, that that can have very negative effects on a marriage. So what God's wanting to do is keep his people faithful to him. He's not saying you can't marry other cultures. He's saying don't marry those other cultures where their women do not worship me. That's going to go very poorly for you. So I explained it to that man, and he looked at me and kind of humbly said, well, I guess I'm just a bigot then. And I thought, oh, you said it, not me. <laughs> but I, I, I'm not looking to turn this into a marriage sermon. But we have a bunch of college students in our midst. And, and I do want you to hear from me that one of, one of the great blessings that Angela and I have gotten to do over the past seven years is go and speak at these marriage conferences over the past seven years all over the place. And it doesn't matter where it is. There, there's one common situation that we see over and over and over again creating very difficult marriages, and that's that they're not what Paul would call equally yoked. Paul takes that same teaching to the Corinthian church, and he says, you, you need to find somebody with whom you are equally yoked. Same kind of, same faith, same stage of faith, same trajectory of faith. And so Angela and I, over and over again, we, we, we see people who didn't take that to heart, maybe naively hoped or believed somebody would become something they're not, and now they have real issues because of it. Now, I do want to say as a caveat, if you find yourself in a marriage like that, God wants you to stay in it. That's, that's, an, that's another sermon, but evangelistic dating isn't something that typically goes well, you know? and, and we, we, we don't want to marry somebody in hopes of who they might one day become when they are not on that trajectory. And so that's the kinds of things that God is wanting to protect his people from. He wants their faith to remain strong. And then he has other, other teachings like the Nazarite vow, but I'll let you read that in number six. And then thirdly, the most significant way that God has blessed this people is through his presence. And so you may remember the Aaronic vow, or the blessing, the Aaronic blessing, the blessing that God gave to Aaron. We read this, I'll read it again. It's so famous that just the, the gravity of it is easily lost. Number 624, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name among the people, among the people of Israel, and I will bless them. 
I mean, do you, do you, it's just, this is crazy what God's saying. It's, it's crazy in a good way. I mean, he, he's saying, I want my face to shine upon all my people, not just Moses and Aaron, not just the Levites, all my people. I want them to have my presence, have access to me in such a personal and intimate way that it actually brings them shalom. It brings them peace, and not just peace in terms of absence of conflict, but bring a type of peace that is a restoration of the way things ought to be. This, this is an unbelievable blessing that God is making of his presence in their lives. None, no one deserves it, but he's saying, this is my desire to give you my presence in this way. When, I, uh, when Angela and I were newly engaged, I remember sitting at a coffee shop uh, across from another couple, and under the table, we were secretly holding hands. And I, and I remember the tingle in my hand. Like, it, just, it was just so thrilling to just hold her hand. And in that moment, her, her presence with me just made me feel like, felt like all was right in the world. You know, I mean, the stock market could crash. I didn't care. Not that I had anything in it, but <laughs> I didn't think about that. Uh, my apartment could burn down. Florida State could go to the toilet, which it did too, I guess, but I didn't care, you know? Like that moment, I had Angela's presence in a way that made me feel like everything is right in the world. Only she could make me feel that way. Now, of course, Angela can make me feel for a moment, then like all was right in the world. She can't actually make all right in the world. And that tingling you have in the early days, it matures into something else. It's not tingling. But the picture still stands. I mean, imagine a relationship with somebody that is so deep and personal and intimate and significant and joyful and loving that it actually makes things the way they ought to be. That is the blessing to Aaron. That is the blessing that God is offering all of his people. And then in chapters 9 and 10, God gives them a physical representation, a manifestation of his presence in the form of this pillar. Pillar, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And that is the pillar that they are to follow all the way to the promised land. At the end of chapter 10, that pillar begins to move. And so all, the Israel packs up, there's a lot of excitement, they're going to the promised land, following the very presence of God, the Levites are in front, uh, holding the ark that contains the covenant between Israel and God, and the feeling at the end of chapter 10 is excitement. Chapter 11, verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. I don't know how much time, time gap is there, but it feels like very soon the people begin to complain. So what is the nature of their complaints? I love how Moses clarifies that this is happening in the hearing of the Lord, as if there's some place that the Lord does not hear. But they complain about their hardships, their hardships as they are being led visibly by the presence of God to the promised land. But they complain. And I do want to make a really important clarification when we talk about complaining. There is a type of complaining that's okay. Complaining to God about your hard situation. We have whole psalms and books of the Bible that is complaining of sorts to God. Humbly. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't know what to do. I need your help. That's complaining to God. That's okay. But then there's complaining about God. I don't 
think, I think I deserve better than you're giving me. I question your justice because of the situation I'm going through. You are not living up to who you say you are. That's complaining about God, and that's what these people are doing. And following God, it doesn't mean that there won't be trials. It doesn't mean there won't be challenges. But what they were missing was God's presence and purpose in those trials and challenges. God says, I will be with you. Lo, I will be with you always, Jesus says. These challenges, he's with us, and it's going somewhere. He's going to use these things for good. So I'll I'll use childbirth as an illustration because I'm a guy and (laughs) know so much about childbirth. But I've seen it four times. Looks rather painful, sound painful, but women take on the, willingly take that pain on because that is a type of pain that leads to life. I've also been in many an oncology ward where there's a different kind of, of pain, sometimes yelling, and that, that's a different kind of pain. That's a pain that in many cases leads to death. And what the Israelites have in their hardship is a pain that leads to life. It's a pain that's going to lead to the promised land. Yet they complained. God says, I'll be with you, I'll sustain you, you have my presence. They complained. They complained about the food. They complained about the leader God gave them. Even Miriam and Aaron complained out of jealousy for Moses' authority. They complain when they don't have water. They get to the edge of the promised land. They send a bunch of spies in to, to look at it. And all but two of the spies come back and they complain that the enemies are too big. So Joshua and Caleb, they're the only two that believe, like it doesn't matter how big they are, we've got God on our side. And then when Joshua and Caleb were saying that, the people complained about them for saying that and wanted to stone them. This is a lot of complaining going on. So the fundamental heart problem under the complaining has to be seen clearly. They want their circumstances to change more than they want God himself. That, that's what they, they would gladly change things to where they didn't have the presence of God if they could have the circumstances that they want. You know, you contrast that to Moses back in Exodus where he was presented with an option where they would get the promised land without the presence of God. And what did Moses say? No, I don't want the promised land if it doesn't come with your presence. And I would rather have your presence than the promised land. That is what is to mark a Christian. But this group of people, they, they wanted their circumstances to change. Maybe even at the expense of God's presence, and it made them a miserable, grumbling, complaining group of people who did not believe God was who he is and did not cherish God's presence among them. I think the the, the ironic blessing, what, what have they been offered? And they'd rather have a better sleeping situation than that. That's the fundamental problem. Interestingly enough, this week, I was walking down Park Avenue with my seven year old James, and we walked by the Catholic church over there, St. Margaret Mary, and James said, what's that building? And I, I said, I see you, buddy. And I said, that's a church. And he said, that is an amazing church. I mean, it is beautiful. You could eat the, the best food. That, that's true. If I were, if I were, he said, if you're the pastor there, you could eat the best food. So that's true. He said, you could have ice cream, gelato, whenever you want. I was like, also true, very important things when choosing a church to pastor. <laughs> and I said, well, James, do you think I should leave OGC and go pastor this church? And without missing a beat, he said, no, you need to be happy with what you got. 
That was a great answer. And there's a lot of wisdom there. But it, it connects here because, I, I, well, I am very thankful to pastor this church. I love this church. But even if everything were to fall apart tomorrow, I have the presence of God for which I can be thankful. Whatever the circumstance, that is what the Israelites in this first generation are missing. So in our challenges, in our trials, and our hardships, do we complain to God as is good, right, and you know, laid out in the Bible? People like David show us how to do it. Or do we complain about God, doubting his justice and goodness towards us, valuing a circumstance change more than having the presence of God himself in our lives? So by chapter 14, things have gotten so bad. They're about to stone Joshua and Caleb. Then God acts. He responds. He, his presence shows up at the tent of meeting in a very significant way. And he says to Moses, and, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a, you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses, as he has had to do a number of times now, he intercedes for the people. He begs God to forgive the people. And you can't help but have the feeling a little bit, does Moses love these people more than God does? He's always the one wanting to help them. No, that's not what's going on. God is holy and just and perfect, and he can't allow this kind of sin, or he is no longer perfectly just. That makes him cease to be perfect. Holiness and being perfectly just is not a burden Moses has to carry. But it's really interesting the, the argument that he makes for the Israelite people. He, he's not defending the Israelites and what they did. He argues for the glory of God. Chapter 14, verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness Verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So God relents, but there are still consequences. He says, no one in this first generation, 20 or older, no one will see that promised land. They will not enter it. All of you will die before the next generation enters that promised land. And so some, some of this happens quickly. Some of it takes 40 years or so. But for this first generation, they will not only not enter the promised land. For them, the wilderness will be their burial ground. And so immediately a plague comes in and this plague is, uh, kills all the spies. So that happens rather immediately. And then in chapter 14, verse 25, God says, all right, now we're going all the way back to the beginning. Back to where we started or close to where we started. And a group of people says, no way, I'm not going back through that again. We're going to go ahead and take the promised land. They are killed by the Canaanites. So more generation, more of that generation is going. Then there's another rebellion against Moses in chapter 16. And another plague kills 14,000 people. 
Then in chapter 21, they are again upset with Moses and God, and they say to him, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die here in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So God sends fiery serpents. Go after them, and anybody who got bit by these fiery serpents, uh, they died. And again, because largely this group of people cares about circumstance, they, they don't like that circumstance, so they repent. And it's saying, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord Moses that he would take away the serpents from us. So God, and Moses prays that, and God says, all right, well, this is what you're going to do. You, you make a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and when anybody is bitten, they can then look at that bronze serpent and be saved. They won't die. So that's what happens. Moses does that. And there are, there are more rebellions and more people dying, both of natural causes and supernatural causes, but you get the point. This is what's going on over the next 40 years. And that at one of the lowest points in the book and really in Scripture, not even Moses escapes the punishment that comes to that generation. They got to another spot where the people were upset because they didn't have water. They said, why have you brought us here to die? We don't like our circumstances. Moses prays to God, God says, go to this rock and, and tell it, speak to it, and water will gush forth. And Moses doesn't believe that God can do that. So he goes with the staff. I don't know if he has seen the staff do miraculous things back in Egypt and thought, I don't know. But he goes, and instead of speaking, he hits the rock. And water comes out. But God tells him, you have sinned against me. You didn't believe me, and for this not even you and Aaron will enter the promised land. At the end of the book, there is a bit of hope. The whole first generation has died. The next generation has come along. They are at the doorsteps of the promised land. And God says, I want you to do another census. I want you to take a census of the fighting men again. And so they do. They take another census outside of Levi. And the number is almost exactly the same. So you have this feeling, okay, there, this is a whole new army, all new people about to go into the promised land. And at the end of the book, the quest, there are two questions that like, loom hugely as you finish the book. The first question is, is, is this holy army going to be more faithful than the first one? Are they going to be able to do it? Remember the main reason that the first generation complained so much is because they saw the main solution as the promised land and not God himself. Does that make sense? They had the presence of God. They had the main blessing. But what they were really living for was the promised land. Not who God was, but what God could give them. That's what they cared most about. All right, so last week, Ben introduced us to chiastic structures. Honestly, chiastic structures and literary devices are not things that I bring up a lot in sermons, but here... And in Ben's part, it is hugely important to understand. So I had Robert make me a really fancy slide that helps us understand chiastic structures right there. And so it is a literary device that helps you to see the main point. The, the, the lower parts mirror each other in some way. The, the next part in the pyramid mirrors each other so that it is not in question what the climax of the story is. It's a super common device that is very helpful if you know to look for it. Well, the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, 
It is a chiasm, chiastic structure. Slide number two. So this is why Numbers and Exodus, they mirror each other in so many ways. You have wandering, you have Moses interceding, you have water, you have all these things that that happen in both books because what's happening is God is pointing to the climax, which is what? Leviticus is the climax, the day of atonement, the moment that God's people were reconciled to him. That's the climax. So in this chiasm, which is the better thing, being reconciled to God and having his presence or getting into the promised land? Being reconciled. That's the big gift, and they don't know this. Their climax, they think, is the promised land because they care more about what God gives them than having God himself. And can you see how that creates a miserable, grumbling, complaining people because they follow God for what he can give them? Now, does God have gifts for people? Yes, there is a promised land coming. But that's just like icing on the cake. And so at the heart, that's why they're grumbling. It's why they're complaining. They don't understand the gift God has given them in his reconciliation and presence. Then we have a second looming question. Who's going to lead us into the promised land? I mean, back in Genesis 3.15, when the fall happened, God said that one day there would come a man from the seed of the woman. He would reverse the curse. He would crush the serpent's head. And then you have all these genealogies in Genesis and Exodus, and they name these people, and it always ends with, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's just another way of saying, not him, not him, not him. And then you have Moses, who has been around for two whole books. I mean, he even saves people from serpents. Could this be the one? Could this be the prophesied one who's coming to reverse the curse? And he sins. He can't even go into the promised land, much less lead us. So who is this promised one? That question is looming large at the end of this book. But this book sets up the answer for that question. And we find the answer to that question in John chapter 3. Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So you see what, he, what Jesus is saying, the same way that Moses put that, that serpent, that bronze serpent up on a pole, and all who look at him are saved. I think it's interesting. To, it's not, God didn't spare them the snakes. They were all already bitten. But when they were bitten, they could look at the serpent and be saved. Jesus is saying the same way, all of humanity is bitten with the, and has the venom of sin inside of us. All we need to do is look at Jesus raised up on a different type of pole, and we too can be saved. And you think, look at the night before, Jesus understood the gravity of what it meant to be up on that pole. He complained to God in the, in the right kind of way. He said, Lord, if the, God, Father, if this cup, the cup of your wrath, that he must drink can be removed, let it, let it be removed. But then Jesus says, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And because of that, he went willingly to the cross to drink the wrath of God that all of us deserve in our place so that there is none left. So who is the prophesied one? Who, who is the better Moses? Who is the one who comes to crush the heel of the serpent to intercede for us and to lead us into the promised land? It is Jesus. And if there's any doubt, you look at what the oracle says in Numbers chapter 24. He prophesies about this one. I see him 
but not now. I behold him, but not near. I want you to pay attention to this next little part. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. You go to the whole other end of the Bible, where Jesus in Revelation 22 is telling John and the churches who he is. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, and here's the connecting part, the bright morning star, the same star that's being talked about in Numbers So we, the church now, we have the same kinds of questions in front of us. Are we going to be faithful? Because we are God's holy army. We we have gone through the waters of baptism. We are wandering with his presence toward the promised land. Now, unlike Israel's army, our call is not to displace people from the promised land, but to bring people with us to the promised land. And we have to answer the same question. Will we make the mistake of the first generation or will we trust in God? I have one more slide. The whole of the redemptive story is a chiastic structure. So where you have Eden and the promised land, you have two kinds of wandering in the wilderness, where is the climax? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ when we are reconciled to him and through which we are able to know him have his Holy Spirit inside of us, we become a new tabernacle. And if, we, if we, we as Christians can mix that up the same exact way the Israelites did, thinking that the climax is the promised land to come, when it is not. There is a promised land, praise God, we get to be a part of, but that is only guaranteed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives us the greatest gift, which is the presence of God among us, inside us, at every minute. And so if that climax is clear in front of us, if, it, if that is what we behold as the true treasure that God gives us, Jesus Christ and his presence, I, I'm very thankful for promised land. I, I'm not gonna, we would be less likely to complain when God doesn't give us all the little circumstances that we want here and now because we got the better gift of his presence. We're not following God just because of the gifts he has for us. We're following God because we get him. So we, the church, have the same question in front of us. Who is the one who will lead us? Jesus. Where is the climax of the story of human redemption? Jesus' resurrection. That is the moment the serpent's head was crushed, that the presence of God was given to us, and the promised land secured and guaranteed. So don't worry about what happens between here and there. And if we model this, if our chiastic structures are in place, like we're going to be a church that marches, that is, marches joyfully and lovingly and securely and surely. And that kind of a church is a church, is an army that not only grows internally, but that's the kind of church that fruitfully brings people into the promised land with us. So Numbers has a ton to say to the church today. There's a lot we didn't cover. I I encourage you to go and read it in its context. It is a a life-giving book because it is a book about Jesus and his church and his presence for his people. Let's pray. 
God, we come to you today just with hearts of deep gratitude and joy for what you do, for who you are. You remain just and gracious, and the only way you can do that to a sinful people without just smiting us is through Jesus Christ, who took your justice that we can receive grace. May your gospel be clear in our hearts. God, may you make us a fruitful army. May you allow us to enjoy your presence and the gift of your presence in a way that that overcomes and transcends any difficulties in our midst because we have you. And may we be fruitful in stewarding the gift of your Holy Spirit inside of us as the new temple, the new tabernacle until that glorious day. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.